Welcome to Unexpected Points. I am your host, Kevin Cole. This is a solo pod here. I uh, hope you had a chance to listen to the pod earlier this week with Ryan Paganetti on there, former linebackers coach and game management specialist for the Eagles. He's going to be joining me every single week. And if you were following him on Twitter last night, make, make it some waves. <clears throat> make it some big waves, actually. Um, his, uh, his follower count, I think, tripled last night as he was uh, giving away some trade secrets for the Eagles there. Um, not really, of course, but uh, talking about some tendencies that Dak had with um, audibilizing into a run by pounding his fist together. He was also really, really great breaking down different um, audible, uh, audibles that Brady made to get that Gronkowski touchdown where he, where he went out different ways that they were checking out of plays, uh, different game management situations. And I'm going to talk a lot about the Tampa Bay Dallas game today. Um, I'm also going to preview some stuff and give you something to watch for every game that's going to go on the rest of the week. But I think there are lots of good preview pods out there. They're going to go into a lot of detail. So I want to be able to make sure that I'm giving you guys something unique here. And I think the way that I go through and break down the results from a game and contrast that to feelings, thoughts that I'm seeing online or headline perception on numbers, kind of contrast those two things is really a good way to have a proper view and context on what went on. And that can be very, very valuable when applying it going forward and our impressions of what's going on going forward, especially in the, in the NFL, where on a week to week basis, you know, you're the, the worst team ever or the best team ever, depending upon what, what happened. But before I get into all that, I want to first give a shout out to all the information here on PFF. I want to make sure everyone's checking that out. We still have time until September 13th for kickoff 30 promo code. Anyone who is a new subscriber to PFF gets 30% off, get all the financing information, get my showdown analysis, my single game contest analysis, where last night uh, I highlighted in the first bullet point, Antonio Brown, Antonio Brown, Antonio Brown, because of the fact that he led the team in uh, yards per route run last year. And he also was one of the top guys in the NFL in targets per route. Um, I'm going to talk about Antonio Brown later because I think the impression on him actually might be a little bit too positive coming out of this game, but we'll, again, we'll talk about that a a little bit later, Uh, but everyone check that out. Promo code kickoff 30 at PFF and also check out fan tracks. So fan tracks is a fantasy football platform that we're using for a league at PFF. You can use player salaries, contract options, bonus points for TDs, all of those different things. It's completely free to use. And if you use promo code PFF at fantrax.com slash PFF, get a chance to win a trip to any regular season game this year for you and your entire league plus six grand. Okay. that sounds like a pretty sweet deal there. Uh, This is promo code PFF at fantrax.com slash PFF. Okay, let's get into the game last night. So, you know, maybe we'll go top down on, on some of this stuff. So I think the impression was a very close game, a very exciting game, a game that, if anything, Dallas surprised, right? They were, depending upon the timing in this last week, anywhere from eight to nine and a half point underdogs. And I talked about this a little bit in the preview pod with Ryan earlier this week, that much of a 
point differential of an expected point differential. If you compare this to the closing line of games in 2020, that puts it in about the 15th to 10th percentile as far as how close the game is. So if you want to flip it around there, it was in the, you know, 85th to 90th percentile for how wide the spread was. So it's a very widespread. So it wasn't seen as being a particularly close game. And I think the way things played out, the fact that it was so close, the fact that there was a last second field goal to win the game for the Bucks, I think the impression coming out of this could be too positive on the Cowboys and not negative on the Bucks because I think they ended up winning. So it's more of a neutral on, on the Bucks, but I think it might be a little bit too positive on the Cowboys coming out of this, despite the fact that I'm not taking anything away from uh, from Dak's performance, which was great, and from that offense's performance, which was really what we're talking about here. This wasn't exactly a defensive matchup. And let me talk about some of the internals on, on why I feel like that. Um, number one, you want to look at these fluky plays or plays. You, you want to look at what not just what affects games, but also have a discount based upon whether or not you can expect these things to happen in the future, right? So if you look at the biggest plays that happened last night from an EPA perspective, uh, the biggest play uh, is a negative play where Chris Godwin fumbled that ball after catching it and getting very, very close to scoring a touchdown. Okay. So that was on fourth down. That was a pass where they would have picked up a first down. That was a play where they probably would have scored a touchdown. It was negative five EPA. And the win probability on that one went from 91% uh, for, for Tampa Bay down to 75%. Hugely, hugely, hugely negative play fumbles when they happen, especially wide receiver fumbles are very likely to be lost. And that's exactly what, what ended up, what ended up happening there. Um, not really Brady's fault. Uh, you could say it was uh, Godwin's fault, but again, it's not something where I think there's a consistency to that type of play happening very often. Uh, so it's, a, it's, a, it's the biggest play of the game and a very, uh, fluky type of play. You combine those two things together and it's something that must be accounted for and discounted there. So that's five points we're talking about there, at least five points because it was a net negative five points. They would have been right near the goal line, right? Um, number two, as far as the most negative play was Dak's interception, which went off of the hands of CD lamb. It was 4.8 points and it lowered their chance of uh, coming back there. Cause they were on the downside. They were at, 36% win probability and it went down to 26. So not as huge in a, in a manner, but still 10% loss and win probability. So the thing about this, and I agree that it was a pass that should have been caught, but I'm going to put the flukiness measure, whatever you want to say that is, I'm going to put that as being much lower than what we saw in the Godwin fumble. Number one, you throw the ball in the middle of the field with seven defenders around you. I mean, there weren't literally seven defenders, but there were at least three or four defenders surrounding, um, surrounding lamb. And you do this on, this is first down play, right? So it's not like they needed to be putting the ball in a precarious situation. It's a little bit dangerous because those are passes that are going to be dropped more often also. Right. 
um, because of the threat of getting hit. Now, Lamb should have made the catch, right? But we can't always look at these things in a binary manner. We can't just say, should have made the catch, therefore, 100% of the blame goes to him and 0% goes to Prescott, and we should just say that this was a play that won't happen that often, right? It just doesn't work that way. And, of course, drop rates are higher than, than fumble rates, generally. So uh, while I'm going to discount that, I'm not going to discount it too much. Now, the third and fourth most impactful plays, these are all negative, by the way, what happened in this game, because that kind of shows you how you had a bunch of these fluky negative plays, which really shows you how well the offenses were doing, right? Because if it weren't for these plays, then the offenses would have done even better. Um, after that was Fournette in the interception when Brady threw it to Fournette. Again, there's a screen pass, went off of Fournette's hands, and ended up getting uh, intercepted. I'm putting that pretty high on the fluky number. It's a short pass. It's low air yards. Uh, they're not dropped that often, right? The the the, the um, catch rate is extremely high on these, and not only for it to be dropped, but for it to land in the in the hands of a defender. So that was 4.7 points lost there. Then the next play after that, Ronald Jones fumbled. 4.6 points lost on that one. Um, he punched it out. I don't think Ronald Jones, I mean, I'd have to look at his fumble numbers over his career, but even if he has elevated fumble numbers, let's say, and I think he has had some fumble issues in the past. Um, we're still talking about fumbles or something that happens on, you know, one, 2% of plays for the, for the worst guys there that don't happen that often. So for it to happen. And again, that was a negative 4.6 points. So we're seeing a few different plays here. You combine these three plays for the Buccaneers, which I'm thinking are all fairly fluky. And we're talking about over 14 points of EPA that they lost on those plays. Now I will discount that a little bit because I think there was a blown ish sort of coverage for Antonio Brown when he scored the long touchdown, which is a 4.5 EPA gain. So there was that. And then on the flip side of the ball, there were missed kicks, right? Zerline missed a 31 yard field goal, um, which because of the fact that it should have been almost hundred percent of the time, you should have made it. And you lost some field position that was losing 3.3 points. Um, and of course he missed an extra point also. So you have that sort of stuff playing into it. Um, but just generally, you know, I think those are good things to, to keep, to keep in mind to say Tampa Bay had worse luck when it came to these fluky plays. And this is very significant. I mean, this is a big, 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 number of highly impactful fluky bad plays that went against Tampa Bay in this game. But I think most people will remember and focus on the missed field goals and the drop by lamb. I think more people will be focusing on those despite the fact that they weren't nearly as impactful as the negative plays that happened for the Buccaneers. So that's it right, right off of the top. Something to keep in mind when you're looking at this. Uh, another thing to keep in mind, quarterback performances, I see here from QBR, which is ESPN's EPA-based metric that it uses to judge quarterbacks. Um, Seth Walder, friend of the pod, he sent something out last night where he said the QBRs were Prescott at 74. This is on a scale from 1 to 100. And the, the number roughly means the percent of time that you would expect the team to win with average surroundings around the quarterback with that quarterback performance. So if everything is average around Prescott, you'd expect the team to win 74% of the time with what he did. Uh, Brady was down at 65% or 65 was his number where it says the unadjusted numbers were virtually identical, but then 
Prescott got a bump because he's facing the difficult Bucks defense. So I do think there is that, right? The Bucks defense is much, much more difficult. Um, but also, you know, the reason Prescott's number is a little bit higher was they were using the screen game and he had a low a dot type of game. If we look at the numbers for, <clears throat> for Brady and for Prescott here, um, Prescott's a dot last night was 7.8 versus 9.7 for Brady. So not extremely low for Prescott, but, but kind of low. And, you know, they were running uh, screen attempts a decent amount there too. So there's that. So that's number one. I think there's, that's a little bit of a problem. If you contrast that to our grades, and I think this is why you want to bring these two metrics together by not necessarily going one versus the other. Cause I think the EPA metric is way off saying that Dak is, was equal, was essentially equal to, to Brady last night. In my opinion, that's, that's off versus what, versus what actually happened. Um, like I said, the QBR had him as being, as being higher. And then the straight EPA metric had, let me get the straight EPA metric. The straight EPA metric had Brady being slightly higher at uh, 0.28 EPA per play versus 0.22 for Prescott. And if you want to put this into context for what those EPA numbers mean, that would be maybe like a QB5 type of performance over a season if you continued on in that way. Um, so, so the EPA is saying even maybe Prescott slightly better. Um, I think that's off our grading and, you know, this is subject to, to, to review some of this stuff. So, um, but our grading has Tom Brady to 92 and then Dak Prescott at a 79. So it's not like, you know, it's not a bad grade, I would say for, for Prescott. If you look at his, his seasonal gradings, you want to compare a 79 grade, um, in 2020 for a passing grade, he was at 80 for 2019, he was at 76. So I think a lot of people are seeing this as being, you know, much better performance than what you would expect, especially considering the competition than maybe the average deck Prescott performance. Um, but I think it's maybe closer to the average th th than we think. And the reason is the one thing that people probably are not talking about is the two turnover worthy plays. So they, he threw multiple passes. One of them looked like could have two different people intercept it, but he threw multiple passes that were dropped interceptions. Uh, Brady did not have any turnover worthy plays. Uh, Dak took a sack and he also was under a lot of pressure. Um, the sack was somewhat costly, but it didn't end up mattering that much because it was at the end of the first half and Bruce Arians could have called a timeout to make that a lot more costly in my opinion, but he didn't, he didn't do that. So they didn't really get the ball back in enough time. And I think Dak executed very well, but I also think there was a pretty good game plan in force. Um, for those who were following me on Twitter last night, I may have been talking admittedly a little bit too much about the fact that I think Dak's arm was, a, was compromised. He started to zip some later, so it looked a bit better. Um, but obviously the game plan, at least initially, was to throw a lot of s screens and dink and dunk. Uh, I made a joke about how one of the drives, which ended up with a, with a fake screen to CD lamb, um, where he then it was a fake kind of wide receiver, uh, screen quick, quick pass out to lamb, which he then ended up taking for a touchdown that it was cliff Kingsbury's dream because they were dinking and dunking so much. But I, I do think some of it was about Dak's arm. Some of it was about neutralizing the pass rush. So I think it was a smart game plan by Kellen Moore there for, for what he did. Um, but when you bring everything all together, I think, again, you're merging the two different measures of grades in EPA. You bring those together. Brady would sit 
fairly well above Dak because of the huge differentiation in grade, which accounts for the turnover where he throws, which accounts for the fact that Brady had all of these turnovers that were not on him. He had zero turnover worthy plays and he had a bunch of what, what we call big time throws. He had as many big time throws as Dak did. They both did really well on the high end sort of stuff, um, but even fewer attempts and the offense really could not be stopped other than the, other than when they turned the ball over themselves. So it was a stronger offensive performance generally than I think they get credit for. And if you look to how these guys were doing as far as their support on the ground, which I think is important. Um, I think that Brady was hurt a little bit more by the fact that at least initially they were attempting to run the ball a little bit too much. Um, and of course they had the fumble, which was, which was highly negative. Um, but you know, at the same time, the Cowboys were really poor running the ball. It was, uh, minus two, nine point two nine EPA per play. A success rate was only 27%. And it was a little bit better for the Buccaneers, but again, neither one of them had much support running the ball. Um, the design plays that we're talking about here, there were only 15 design runs, for the Buccaneers, there were 15 also for the Cowboys. And then there were 69 dropbacks for the Cowboys and 54 for the Buccaneers. So very good performances by both quarterbacks, but I think an excellent performance by Brady and then Dak was, was good, but a couple of those turnover worthy plays, if those would have happened, it would have dramatically changed the outlook for the entire offense. And I think people are not, are not focusing on that one quite as much as maybe they should at this point. Uh, the other things that I would look at in a game to try to figure out what's going on, anything that we need to discount penalties is a big one. So I went through uh, all the penalties and I think they were all fair. They were all fair. Now the ones that hurt the Cowboys the most were the holding penalties. Uh, but if you look at the, those holding penalties that happened, you know, Vita Vea was just killing uh, Connor Williams. And then on the outside, Tyron Smith got a holding penalty, which looked like a legit call. So I think those are all legit and the bucks had a great pass rush. So they were forcing those penalties. And in fact, you know, there's some clips shared there and uh, Mike Renner, our PFF, Mike underscore Mike shared a clip showing that even when the buck, when the Cowboys got into field position late in the game, there was probably a hole there on Vita Vea that wasn't called. So I think those were all pretty legit. The, the amount of EPA that they lost on that was about equal to EPA that was lost for the Buccaneers on some pass interference calls. Uh, I don't think the pass interference calls were bad. I think the, the uh, face mask on one of them was that was added onto it was a little bit bad, but pass interference calls are generally again, flukier than the holding calls. Now on the opposite side, people are really, really going to focus on the offensive pass interference that was not called on Chris Godwin. Again, that's another one that is a 50, 50 sort of thing. So yeah, if you lose the EPA on that play, you know, it could have made, it could have made a difference there, right? That would have been a a big difference as far as being able for, for them to come through and win the game. But like I mentioned, you could discount that somewhat just as easily, just looking very quickly by seeing a hold that was missed on the same play where Dallas got into a field position. And if you want to look, let's look up that Chris Godwin play to figure out how important that was in terms of, um, deep pass to the left. So they gained 1.8 EPA and the 10, the win probability went from 54 to 71. So that's a pretty big, so it went up by quick math here, 17% from 54 to 71. Um, then 
they go, they go ahead and, you know, once you made the field goal, boom, 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 it was looking pretty good. Um, I actually think the win probability should have been quite a bit higher on that. I'm going to have to check out these numbers. That, that, that doesn't make the most sense to me. Um, quite, quite honestly. So I, I feel like that was, that was a big play though, clearly. Right. Uh, but it was on second down and 10. So they had more time to potentially run another play if it was, if it was incomplete and it had been called. Um, so I think that's a, that's a big factor there. Now, if we go into actually, before we go into the specifics here for these different players, I want to give one more ad read here because I'm going to get into some of the fantasy angle here. And that is for DraftKings. Uh, fire up your tailgates. The NFL is back. Get in on the action before opening night kicks off with DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the NFL and the NFL's returning. DraftKings is giving all customers the opportunity to participate in this year's no-brainer offer. Um, so actually this offer is, I should probably should read this beforehand, is, is out of play now that Tampa Bay is over. But still, I'm sure there's a new offer coming up here. Um Bet $1 in any football game. This offer is still good. $1 in any football game to receive $200 in bets free instantly with promo code PFFBET. That's P-F-F-B-E-T this week at DraftKings Sportsbook. Uh, must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. Free bet promotion for new customers only. Minimum $5 deposit. Max wager limits apply. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem. Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Um, so the, the, when I was talking about the, the players, now let's talk about the players and what our reactions may be to it afterwards. I think the negative on Ezekiel Elliott, that's probably going to be the top line issue for some people. We knew this was going to be a poor matchup. They didn't run it very often. We saw that. They did run it poorly, but Zeke was in there for, you know, 80 plus percent of the snaps, toting Pollard for about 26% and then Corey Clement for 1.3. So dominant, dominant share still there for Elliott, even in a game where they were really, really looking to pass the ball a lot. So wouldn't be concerned about Elliott. On the other side, I'd run a bit with this uh, Leonard Fournette versus Ronald Jones in particular. Fournette was in there for 64% of the snaps. Um, again, they were pass heavy team and he was still in there for 64% of the snaps. He did drop the screen pass, which got intercepted, but he, he, he wasn't benched after that or anything like that. Uh, Giovanni Bernard was in there for about 25, 26% of snaps. I thought his performance was a little disappointing. Uh, some of it is going to be random whether or not he's being targeted on third down, but I think what could be a difference and maybe I didn't think about enough when I was positive on geo earlier this year, which could be a difference between this Tampa Bay team versus the new England Patriots teams in the past where James white thrives so much is that you got other options, right? The Patriots teams. Yeah. They had, you know, Julian Edelman in there. They had Gronkowski sometimes, sometimes not, sometimes he's injured, but James white and those screen passes or the short passes to white, the opportunity cost was much lower going with those shorter passes, which have higher, which have less upside, right? Um, the opportunity cost is much lower because you didn't necessarily have all these great options on the offense. Now we're talking about an offense offense with uh, Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, Antonio Brown, and Gronkowski. Uh, and, you know, OJ Howard and other guys, if they actually get in there and do something, you just have tons and tons, tons of options. So I think that may be 
I think Brady is probably properly adjusting to the fact that he has these other guys in a system where he can throw the ball down the field a bit more versus just using Bernard as much. I think Bernard will be a situational guy who will pick up some third downs, especially if he has linebackers covering him out of the backfield, but maybe he's not going to be nearly as useful as someone like a, like a James white. So I think that's something to watch. We don't want to read too much into one game, but this is a very, very pass heavy game um, for the bucks, but they were extremely good at converting and moving the ball and not needing to get into a ton of third downs. And then when they did, they were able to move the ball down the field with the great receiver trio, as opposed to having to use Gio Bernard. Now in the backfield, um, Ronald Jones is the, is the question less than 10% of snaps. Of course he had the fumble, which led to him being benched big problems for him coming out of this. Although I think, you know, for Fournette, there might be some limited upside there too, for him. Um, I'm just, is it, Bernard was still in there a lot and then Jones could make a comeback. So I don't know, this is a muddled backfield, which we probably want to stay away from now. Antonio Brown is the big headline coming out of the game for the Buccaneers uh, from a perspective of what's this guy going to do going forward. He had five receptions for 121 yards and a touchdown, including that 47 yard touchdown. So I think though, that if you're going to say he is, it's like an equal at worst situation as far as, Antonio Brown is a receiving option or that he is now maybe Godwin's first and Brown second. And then Evans is third. As far as receiving options, I, I think it's a little too quick to be saying that at this point. And the reason is when we dig inside some of the numbers, I mean, number one, you know, Evans had six targets to Brown seven. So it's fairly close there. Godwin had 14 targets and nine receptions. Uh, Brown only had five receptions, right? So he was efficient with those seven targets, but still only five receptions. One of them was on a blown coverage, 47-yard touchdown, or blown-ish coverage on a 47-yard touchdown. Um, and the thing with Brown, I think the problem is going to be, I highlighted going into this game, he had such great per-route numbers, whether it's yards per route or targets per route. But you can only go so far if those routes don't get up, right? That's what we need to see from Brown. Is not. It's great that he's extremely, extremely efficient, right? But it's even better if he's out there running routes a, a ton. So Brown ran 36 routes last night versus 50 for Godwin and 48 for Evans. Maybe you could say it's not the, the biggest difference, but still, you know, going from 36 to 48 routes, let's say he gets up to where Evans is, that's adding a third. That's a third more uh, of what his total was at 36, getting up to the, to Godwin, we're getting closer to 35, 40% more routes. That's just going to help his number so, so much. On the other side of the ball, Cooper and Lamb. Yeah, Cooper, I think, maybe established himself a little bit more as being the, the number one guy there, but I think that can really uh, jump all over the place. Cooper ran 62 routes to 53 for Lamb. And again, if you dig into those numbers a bit, Yes, Cooper had 16 targets to Lamb's 15, but Lamb was way ahead on, on targets earlier. So those guys are are still somewhat fairly close when it comes to how often they're being they're being targeted, right? Um, it's not as skewed to Cooper. It's just he turned those 16 targets into 13 catches, whereas Lamb's 15 targets only were only translated into seven catches. So I think Lamb and, and Cooper, we shouldn't necessarily change our opinion that much there. For Brown, I think we should bump him up some, but I wouldn't go crazy with how far you would bump him up here because of the fact that we really need to get those 
routes up for it to be something that can be sustained going forward. Maybe his productivity and how good he looks will end up accomplishing that. Maybe not, but for now, temper, temper um, expectations there for Brown. And again, from the bigger picture, as we wrap up previewing the game here, the bigger picture is when I run all of my game grades of my numbers, uh, although Tampa Bay won by two points, for me, it was more like a six-point victory, um, six, seven-point victory. And, or there were six, seven points better, I should say, not victory. Six, seven points better, which would have been you know, still a cover for the Cowboys, but not nearly as close as what the end result uh, ended up being. Okay, so before I get into some of these previews, another quick ad here, this one for Western and Southern. In these uncertain times, life is full of questions like, when should I start thinking about life insurance? But however difficult these questions may be, Western and Southern can help you answer them, backed by over 130 years of experience. Together, we can look ahead and leave the unknown behind. Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement, and investments, compensated endorser, products issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. All right, I'm going to hit these pretty quickly. I know there's a ton of great shows out there where they're going to you know, preview every single game. I'm going to hit some of the key metrics that I'm looking at going into the games, and then also you know, a key thing that I'm looking at in each one of these games. So first let's start in the Sunday early games. So we have um, Philadelphia at Atlanta. Atlanta is a three and a half point favorite. The over under is 48 and a half points, which means the implied total is 26 points for the Falcons and 22 points for the Eagles. Uh, so the, the thing that I'm going to be most interested in here is Kyle Pitts, of course, everyone's going to be interested in Kyle Pitts, but the thing is he's going to be out there. He's going to be running routes. So there's no real questions there, whether he's targeted or how well he does. In my opinion, what I would do there is maybe fade whatever the result is here, right? Like if he has a super smash game, I would say fade the, the overhype there, maybe look to even trade him. If you can get up into that true elite tight end tier, like a Waller or someone like that. And then on the flip side, um, if he doesn't do anything, don't get too discouraged. As long as he's out there running routes, um, it's going to be a, a slow potential start for tight ends, a slow position. Generally tight end is a, uh, in the, in the NFL, uh, for rookies week one, it's going to be slow, uh, on the Philadelphia side of the ball. The number one thing that I'm looking for from a player perspective is Quez Watkins. Cause I feel like he has potential to be the number two receiver. I think he's going to be in there in the slot a lot. So how often is Watkins in there versus other options that they have like Ward and others? How often is he playing out of the slot, maybe getting some of those slants and other things that they run on RPOs on offense? I think that's going to be extremely important. And that's what I'm really going to be looking at is, is, is Quez Watkins. Now, Rager, I was big on him coming out. I don't know. We can't necessarily write him off, but I'm not going to get too high or low on him based upon what happens. Uh, I think Devonte Smith is going to be out there a lot and I think he's going to be fantastic this year, but again, he's not, I'm not going to be so focused on that versus whether Quez Watkins can actually be a viable player, uh, not only in season long, but in DFS going forward with his role. Okay. The next game is, Pittsburgh Buffalo. This is a matchup that we saw a couple of times last year, once where it was a little bit closer, once where it wasn't close at all. Uh, Buffalo is a six and a half point favorite. 
as the home team. Their implied team total is 27 and a half, which is pretty high when you consider the fact that the defense for the Steelers, they had the second best defense in EPA per play against uh, versus when, when the opponent was dropping back to pass and then second best overall. So what does that translate to for uh, the Buffalo Bills, right? And I think that is what I'm going to be watching more than anything else is to say, are they going to do this pass all the time sort of thing that we saw last, la- I mean, not last week, but a couple of weeks ago that we saw in the, in the preseason, is that going to be the new thing, right? Um, or are we going to be looking at potentially running the ball here? And what happens with Devin Singletary in particular? Uh, I know that I think Singletary has separated himself from Zach Moss there. I think he will get a decent amount of run and maybe by some miracle, he can actually be useful in this backfield. This would be a great time for the bills to try to lean on that from the fact that they they're playing a team that is so good at rushing the pass. Now that may have gone down a bit, you know, they've the Bud Dupree who was injured and everything else, you know, he's not going to be there anymore. Obviously other guys won't be there, but it'll just be interesting to see whether or not they can lean on the run a bit more because when they played last year, it wasn't an even distribution, but the first game, it looks like they dropped back to pass 44 times Actually, more than that. They dropped back to pass about 49 times, and then um, and then they ran the ball a little bit over 20 times. So it was pretty skewed towards the pass. Uh, I'll be interested to see what they going, they're going to do here, but I don't think it's going to be the 90% sort of number that we saw before. And then Steelers, yeah, I mean, for me, the Steelers is all about Chase Claypool. Uh, is he going to be, is he going to take over for James Washington or not a hundred percent, you know, taking all those routes as a third wide receiver, how often are they going to run the ball versus passing the ball and how that's going to affect him and the other receivers since they were so, so run, uh, I mean, pass dominant last year, however, they're going to use play action. Cause I think play action is something that is going to lend into chase Claypool. They barely ran any play action. They're so, so far. I think they had, even if you doubled the amount of play action they ran last year, you still they still would have been last in their play action. So motion, play action, ability to use Claypool down the field uh, offensively, and whether or not they're going to shift more to the run. And I think the Najee Harris thing, it'll be interesting to see, but I'm, I'm assuming with pretty high confidence that he is just going to be the guy all the time there. So it's really going to be about the proportion of how much they're running versus whether or not they're using Najee Harris. He will be heavily, heavily used Uh, Carolina and the jets. I think this is a very interesting game because we have the, you know, old jets quarterback, Sam Darnold in there versus Zach Wilson. So what am I looking for in this one more than anything else? I'm looking for see if Sam Darnold poops himself or not, (laughs) basically because uh, to be frank, because in the preseason, he got some hype for playing well, but if you looked at it, there were some ugly throws. There were some turnover worthy plays. There was a sack that he could have lost to fumble on. There were issues, issues, issues. So they're not facing the most fierce defense with Carl Lawson out, but I think that Jets defense is going to get better. You have Robert Sala there. Who's going to, who's, who's obviously pushing forward. And 
it's a Jets defense that last year, if you look at their EPA per play, 29th against the pass, pretty bad. And then, of course, they had the worst offense in the league themselves. Uh, Carolina is a four-point favorite, 44 over under. So these are some small totals. The Jets only have a total of implied total of 20 points, which is the second lowest of any team this week. The lowest is the New York Giants. Looks like they have the lowest total. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's the third lowest. The Detroit Lions lowest, then the Giants. Oh, no, I'm missing another one. Then the Chicago Bears and then the um, the Jets. So a low total there. Um, and on the Jets side, Elijah Moore. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> if, if Crowder doesn't play in particular, he's going to be the guy that I'm going to have all eyes fixated on. And then maybe see, you know, who, who's, who's in this backfield here. I'm not going to get too enthusiastic about Ty Johnson or um, Tevin Coleman if they take over, but Michael Carter, hopefully he actually gets a run in this game or else it could be a long season for guys who drafted him in the 10th, 11th, 12th round, and then have him sitting on the bench. Okay. Next game, Cincinnati at home versus Minnesota. Minnesota is a three point favorite a 47 and a half total. So that makes it implied 25 and a quarter points for Minnesota, 22 and a quarter for Burrow. I mean, so many different things to look at this game. Uh, not only how does Burrow look, how does that offensive line look against a Minnesota defense, which is going to bring pressure. If you look at Minnesota last year, Minnesota is one of those like sneaky, actually pretty good teams they had the fourth best run game by epa per play the 10th best and drop back eighth best overall the defense was really what fell apart and especially against the run and if you remember last year the Bengals just ran just threw the crap out of the ball before burrow got injured but the uh, minnesota had one of the worst run defenses and had a pretty bad pass defense too although they were subject to a lot of big plays especially early in the season when they faced rogers and others so if that defense can get a little bit better, um, it'll be interesting to see. So I want to see, is Cincinnati going to continue with this heavy, heavy pass approach after drafting Jamar Chase, or are they going to going to run the ball a bit more? Are they going to use empty? They were one of the highest teams in using empty last year. Burrow was good doing it, but are they going to continue to do that? That's a very interesting point there. And then the Minnesota side of things, I just I mean, Thielen and Jefferson season. <laughs> I just want to see these guys. They don't have much target competition at all. So, you know, can Tyler Calkin get involved at all? I don't know. Um, Chris Herndon, how much will he play? I don't think it's really important, quite honestly. What's really going to be the most important here is how high scoring can Thielen and Jefferson be and whether or not Jefferson can take that step, I think, to being potentially the best receiver in the NFL, let's face it, but really being an elite, elite top three receiver. I think that's what I'm going to be looking out for. Although again, when it's the receiving game, you can't get <clears throat> too focused on one particular thing. Okay. Next uh, Detroit at home versus San Francisco. As I mentioned earlier, Detroit is the lowest implied total 18 and three quarters points. Uh, San Francisco is a seven and a half point favorite, which is pretty interesting. If you contrast that to the line last night where the bucks were, you know, eight and a half, nine point favorites, San Francisco is only seven and a half playing against the Detroit Lions, but it is in Detroit. So the implied totals here, tiny, like I said, for Detroit, for San Francisco, 26 and a quarter. It's pretty good. This should be a great game script game. 
Um, we're going to want to see, I think Raheem Mostert could have a big, big, big game here. So I wouldn't be surprised if people are really on him. And I think justifiably so. Uh, we're going to see how Trey Lance is used. I think Trey Lance is going to be used as a, not a Taysom Hill, but like Taysom Hill who can throw the ball sort of thing. As far as when he's using these types of packages, especially near the goal line, how easy it was when you saw that they scored a touchdown in the preseason, when they use the motion, they use the different uh, fakes. They gave the options to Trey Lance on what to do. I think this could be very, very important. But I still think Jimmy G is going to be the man. And, you know, just if the game is close, then we start saying Trey Lance watch. Let's get Trey Lance watch going again. When is he going to end up actually actually playing? Okay, so Houston at home versus Jacksonville. Uh, Jacksonville is a three-point favorite. This is one of the best chances for Houston to actually win a game. So I think they should be thinking about that. Uh, the over-under is 45 and a half, so not too bad. So Jacksonville, you know, implied um, team total of 24 and a quarter points, you know, maybe that offense will get going substantially, but if it doesn't, this could be one of the better numbers that we're going to see here because the Texas defense was basically the worst in the league last year. And I don't think it's going to necessarily get any better. So what are we interested to see here? The Texan side, I don't know if we're interested to see anything. <laughs> Honestly, as far as the offensive side there, maybe if Brandon cooks could be a thing we're hoping, you know, he, he can be a thing. Uh, he's been drafted with some possibility of that being a case. So I think that's interesting. That backfield, I don't know if we can take anything that happens on a week-by-week basis and be interested in it. Uh, the Jacksonville side of things, I want to see the route distribution between Marvin Jones, uh, LaVisca Chenault, and DJ Chark. And then I want to see uh, the backfield distribution. Those two distributions, very, very important. The actual results, I'm going to be a little bit less important for, but the backfield distribution between James Robinson and Carlos Hyde. It's going to say a lot about what's going to happen the rest of the season. Um, so I wouldn't focus again, as much on production. If there's a good split of the backfield in one guy's favor or another, I would be acting more upon that than acting upon what happens with production. Okay. So the Colts at home versus the Seahawks, the Seahawks are three point favorites. It's a 50 total. So that's 26 and a half points for implied for the Seahawks. And then 23 and a half for Indianapolis. What I'm paying attention to here, Michael Pittman, Michael Pittman, Michael Pittman for the Colts. Uh, Will he be a thing this year? No T.Y. Hilton. Uh, Not a whole lot going on as far as they got names like Moe Cox and Doyle as far as tight ends, but not not a ton going on there. How often will they utilize the running backs in the passing game? Because Phillip Rivers was number one in the NFL. Carson Wentz has been a lower guy. Uh, he's been in the bottom half of the league as far as his running back target. So how are they going to do that there? Um, Seattle, what am I looking for there? Hmm. I don't know. The Shane Waldron effect. Uh, I think this is going to be a run heavy scheme that I know people say you don't want to read too much into that, but you know, Pete Carroll hit on that so much to end the season. And it seems weird to say Brian Schottenheimer would have been fired because of that, but that's really going to be what I'm looking at the run pass distribution, especially on early downs. Are they giving a chance for Russell Wilson there? And then to a lesser degree, Gerald Everett, if he can become involved or not, Russell Wilson has not had any success in the past or not much success in the past with his tight ends, even though they traded, I think a first round pick for Jimmy Graham at one point, uh, they brought in, you know, dusty Greg Olson. Uh, they haven't been able to really do too much there. So can Everett actually be a thing? We will see and on the defensive side of the ball, you know, the Colts defense, I think can really, really be tough. So this is a pretty big number. Uh, I know that it's in the dome, everything else, but I feel like this could be a little bit 
more difficult than you think if the Colts defense can implement that too high, the cover four, cover six sort of shells that were being used against Russell Wilson, they can implement that and be successful again this year. Whether or not that was a fluky thing that they've been able to solve, right? That is the thing for Seattle. Have you solved that problem that you had there? And if their solution is we're just going to run the ball a ton on first down to loosen things up, could be a long, long year. Uh, Okay, I'm going to hit with one more uh, ad read before we get to the end here. And this last ad read is going to be for Manscaped. Uh, they're a sponsor of today's show. They're the leaders in below the waist grooming just launched a new performance package 4.0 2 million men worldwide who trust manscape get ready for kickoff by going to manscape.com for 20% off and free shipping with promo code PFF uh, inside their performance package 4.0. You will find the lawnmower 4.0 trimmer weed whacker for ear and nose hair trimmer. I use that one. That's very good. Um, performance boxes, briefs, travel bag, so many different things there. Get 20% off and free shipping with promo code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with code promo code PFF at manscaped.com. Okay, so the rest of these games here, Tennessee, Arizona. Key here, I'm really looking at the Arizona side. How much are they going to use Kyler Murray in the run game? He doesn't want to be used that much there. Their offense was really, let's face it, ineffective last year without Kyler Murray running the ball. Look at their numbers in their drop back. The drop back efficiency, 16th. 16th. And that includes a bunch of big scrambles that they had with Murray early in the season. They're an average team. How is Rondell Moore going to fit into this? Is A.J. Green, can he potentially come back at all? I don't think so. Um, Can Rondell Moore be used down the field, not just the screen game? Uh, Is this going to be more horizontal raid? What's going on with that offense? Because I think Cliff Kingsbury could be on his way out um, if they disappoint this season, especially playing in the toughest division in football. If they get to the point midway, three-quarters of the way through the season that you're like, we know they're not going to make the playoffs. They're they're either actually or – um, essentially li- eliminated from playoff competition. We have Kyler Murray, who's not being unlocked in his third season. Cliff Kingsbury could see the, the door. So that'd be interesting to see there. Tennessee, can they get a pass rush with all of these defensive investments? That's going to be the thing that I'm looking for them on defense. Um, Murray's not the easiest quarterback to sack. and He's not the easiest quarterback to corral, but if they can get especially some interior pressure. That would be interesting there. And then on the offensive side of the ball, Julio Jones, will he be potentially the 1A? I think that's a very, very strong possibility. And then will they open things up a little bit more? You know, they haven't had a lot of receiving options. And A.J. Brown had missed time. I know they had Corey Davis last year. But maybe they'll open things up a little bit more, especially against Arizona. Because if you think about it, they're a team that their run defense was a little bit better than their pass defense last year. So I think it's still going to be play action heavy. It's still going to be a continuation of the scheme, all that stuff. But, you know, maybe there's some possibility that Tennessee opens it up a bit more. If we can get more volume there, man, Julio Jones is going to look like such a steal. And he was a guy that I was pumping up a lot to take in the fourth round of drafts. Okay. Washington at home versus the Chargers, the red I was about to say the Redskins, the football team, maybe, maybe the red hogs pretty soon um, is a one point favorite. The over under is 44 and a half. So it's pretty low with the good defenses here. 
So both teams are not seeing as being that high scoring of an affair. So I think that's going to be interesting here because people are going to be really excited about Justin Herbert, other things. Um, how's it going to work against this defense, which should provide a lot of pressure. We've all said, you know, everyone knows Justin Herbert was the best quarterback in the NFL last year against an EPA per play and in grade against pressure. So he's going to face pressure. Will that unstable ish sort of performance continue or not against a team that can really bring the pass rush. And then, We'll see with Austin Eckler and his injury. That's kind of just, you can just say, we'll see. I'm not really sure here. Uh, and maybe on a lower note, does Josh Palmer get involved at all? Hmm. Uh, I'm not really thinking he's going to be a thing no matter what happens there, but they, you know, they did release um, Tyron Johnson, which, which is a good indication for Palmer. So we'll see for Washington, uh, Curtis Samuel, how is he doing? Diami Brown as he get in there. And I really want to see if Terry McLaurin is going to be unlocked. That's my thing. I think Terry McLaurin is going to take the next step forward this year. Can that happen? I also think Logan Thomas is just going to be a great option this year in drafts with Ryan Fitzpatrick. And we're hoping to get the good Fitzpatrick and not the bad Fitzpatrick here. Okay. So to, to the late games, KC Cleveland, it's going to be the biggest game of the week. As far as interest is concerned uh, for Sunday, KC's a five and a half point favorite, which isn't that big when considered the fact that they're at home. Um, the over under there is 54 and a half. So for the week, that is the biggest total. Um, and if you look at the implied is 30 points for KC, again, the highest implied there, um, there's just some astronomical numbers when I'm running simulations for how likely it is that Mahomes and, uh, Tyreek Hill and Kelsey are going to go off this game. Now it might be hard to fit everyone in if you're looking at DFS or something like that, but it really is amazing. And for the biggest thing I'm looking at is the Cleveland defense. How are they going to approach this game? Uh, how's the pass rush going to look versus a rebuilt um, chiefs offensive line? I think what really is here, the key for me is Jadavian Clowney and what he's going to do, because it sounds like they're going to move him inside a bit more. And there was a pretty awesome piece of research. If you guys want to go back that Steve Ruiz wrote at for the win, when he looked at Clowney and we always had this thing with Clowney where he said he's getting pressures, but not sacks. So it was, it was as if he was underrated because he wasn't getting sacks, but he was getting pressures. But when you start to look into it and this is what Steve did is he said, let me look at these pressures and see what's happening. He's also getting double teamed a lot. So it's like, Oh, he's getting double teamed a lot. Well, the, the thing was with Clowney was when he was on the edge, he could, he actually had trouble bending and going around the edge. So often he was getting pressure and he was getting double teamed where he was taking inside moves. Now you're more likely to get double teamed on the edge if you go inside, because then you bring the guard into the equation and you're less likely to get a sack, but instead get a pressure when you go inside, because you're kind of pushing the defender back into the quarterback, which causes a pressure, but it's hard to wrap up and get a sack in that circumstance, as opposed to someone like miles Garrett, who comes around the edge and has that bend and is going to have a high sack to pressure ratio because of that. And like very, very high impact plays when you get those sacks. Right. So I think Clowney was just never going to be that dominant edge rusher sack producer. So if the Browns really can move him inside, uh, can use him, especially if they, if they have him going against some of the rebuilt guys, they have a new center, they have a, uh, you know, they have new players across the board, but Joe Tooney is going to be on one side, but then you're going to have rebuilt players on, on the other side. Um, I think that could be really interesting. How is Orlando Brown going to hold up against Miles Garrett or someone else now that he's in a wholly a different system, which doesn't go to his strengths? I think that's a very interesting angle there. And then the Browns defense was bad last year, but they got a whole bunch of moving parts. So John Johnson, Troy Hill coming in here. 
Um, how are those things going to work together? Uh, how are all the cornerbacks if they're healthy? Uh, Greg Newsom, I don't think he's going to be involved that much, the rookie, but how is all the, all these things are going to work? Because if you look at their defense, they were 16th against the run last year in EPA per play, but 25th, they were just bad, 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 and they were getting torn up. So that's really going to be the thing, I think, more important than anything else if they can go to the next level. I know a lot of people are going to be focused on the Browns offense and how it plays, but that's kind of the least interesting thing to me because I think that's kind of set in stone and determined as far as what will, what will end up happening. Okay, so other late games we have. This is a great one. The Patriots at home versus the Dolphins. What's interesting about this game, straight up, the fact that they're a three-point favorite, I think is interesting. Uh, I know Miami was probably a little bit overvalued in people's minds last year because they were so turnover heavy and they got this fluky performance from Ryan Fitzpatrick, but still, we're talking about a team that now is a 25 and a quarter implied team total, not so hot. Um, so yeah, it's really just going to be, how does that Miami offense look? And one little detail about Tua is I was looking not only in the preseason, did he do this, but he did this last year where he's got this Lamar Jackson ish sort of thing going on where he loves the middle of the field versus the sidelines. If you look at most NFL passers are throwing, once we get past you know, five yards down the field, oh, no, past the line of scrimmage, just anything past the line of scrimmage. Most NFL passers are throwing over half of their passes to the sidelines as opposed to down into the middle of the field. Um, Tua in the preseason was 65% of his passes were in the middle. So he's only doing 35 on the outside versus more than half. And then last year during the regular season, 55, 60% of his passes were in the middle of the field. So again, he really loves the middle of the field, but we saw that this can also, this can lead to some turnovers sometimes. So how is that going to work? Can they use guys like Jalen Waddle to get a lot of run after the catch? That'll be interesting. You're not going to have Will Fuller there because he has a suspension. So how is it going to work with Gesicki? Um, the backfield split, I'm actually pretty confident that it's going to be Gaskin. So I'm not that worried there. But if it wasn't, then that would be something to, to note. New England side of the ball, of course, you have Mac Jones. What's going to go on there? You kind of have the two defenses going against each other that are very similar from the same tree. So that'll be pretty interesting. But we're expecting a lot from this New England defense. So I think it might be a little bit overhyped. I know with Dante Hightower back there and 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 other players who are healthy, Gilmore, that you're expecting them to be at that level again, but might be a little bit too much of a projection for me. And the offensive side of the ball, I just don't think anything surprising is going to happen on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, I mean, maybe if Jacoby Myers is not the guy and you see that it's just going to be this muddled split uh, now that they have Kendrick Bourne and uh, Nelson Aguilar there, that could be interesting, but that's really it for me. I assume Damian Harris is going to be the early down guy. James White's going to be the late down guy. Ramondre Stevenson may get a little tiny bit of run, but, but it will grow throughout the season. Okay. Saints and Packers. So the Saints are, the Packers are a four point favorite at the Saints. So the interesting thing here is Alvin Kamara. How often is he going to be involved in the passing game? How long, how much would they lean on him? Or will Jason just, I mean, Jameis just be YOLO Jameis and be willing to push the ball down the field all the time uh, on the Packers side of the ball. I'm interested in AJ Dillon and the passing game because Aaron Jones, whether or not he's justified for being this top, top fantasy guy, one of the ways that he could actually be more valuable this year is if they decide on the goal line, we're not just going to turn the ball, turn it over to AJ Dillon, but we like having Jones in there because of his receiving prowess. And then you start to open it up and say, you know, Jamal Williams was like one of these do everything guys, right? That coaches love. I mean, look how he's being received in the, uh, for the lions. So I think there's some possibility that Dylan actually has a smaller role than Williams had, especially because he's not getting involved in the passing game. 
And then that would open up more for Aaron Jones if he can stay healthy. So we'll keep an eye out on that. Not a whole lot to say about anything else as far as the offenses are concerned in this one. I think New Orleans, their defense is really going to be the interesting question because they've lost so many pieces there. They had the third best run defense, the 12th best against the past, the top 10 defense overall. Uh, losing Hendrickson, losing George Jenkins, losing a bunch of guys in the secondary uh, cap hell that they've come into. How are they going to hold up against Rodgers, who tore them up last year, even with uh, the great defense that they had? Okay, Giants and the Denver Broncos. Ugly, ugly, ugly total here. Lowest total of the week at 41.5 points. And this is really a defensive matchup. How are those two defenses going to hold up? How is Teddy going to look? As quarterback, I think it's interesting. Looking out for KJ Hamler in particular, I think he's a sneaky guy who he could become the wide receiver two there. That'll be interesting. Uh, how much are they going to use Javante Williams? I'm not going to get too high or low based upon that because I think it's a it's a done deal that eventually he'll turn he'll take over that backfield, but it could start slow. So if Gordon looks really great out the out the box, or if Williams fumbles, then that can become an issue there. On the Giants side, can they protect Daniel Jones? Cause he, I feel like fumbles are on their way there. So I want to track that carefully. How often he's under pressure, how often is he maybe fumbling, but recovering his own fumble. So if he gets lucky or unlucky in that regard, and then the last couple of games here, Sunday night, uh, Rams bears Rams are seven and a half point favorites. So I think the thing to look out for here is the backfield split for the Rams. Sony Michelle could be a little bit of a sneaky guy there. So I'm very, very interested in what's going to happen there. Uh, maybe the wide receiver three for the Rams. If you're interested in this, like two, two Atwell versus van Jefferson thing, I'm not really that interested quite honestly, but if you're interested there um, Stafford, everyone's overreaction, this will be overreaction season to Stafford. So I think that's pretty clear. there, going against a strong defense. And then for the bears, you know, there's not that much I'm interested in it other than the backfield split. Maybe how off, how much is Damien Williams going to be involved? Tariq Cohen does not seem like it's going to be much of a thing this year with the recovery. Um, so I'm going to see, can Williams maybe be similar to like a Jamal Williams for the, for the package last year. And if he gets enough of a share, it becomes difficult for Montgomery to perform this year because that bears offense is not going to be very dynamic. And of course, how bad Andy Dalton looks. I think the clock on fields is already ticking. I'd be shocked if he wasn't in there and starting by week four at the latest, um, but it could happen as soon as playing against the Bengals next week at home. And last but not least, it is the Raiders at home versus the Ravens. Ravens are four and a half point favorites. 50 point total puts the Ravens at 27 and a half points. So what I'm looking for here is, you know, the backfield is going to be a mess for the Ravens. I don't necessarily trust anyone there, but I think Tyson Tyson Williams is going to be the guy that you're going to want. And, you know, I, I would start him if you don't have another good option, if you're doing a running back zero type of team. Uh, I feel confident that even though they brought in all of these dusty old names, whether it's Le'Veon Bell or Devontae Freeman or Latavius Murray everything else that it's looking, it's looking like um, he is going to be the guy, I think at least for this week. So, so there's that, I would be confident, somewhat confident on that Uh, Baltimore receivers, Sammy Watkins. Let's see what he can do there. Um, And I also think want to see how much Lamar is going to run it. I want to see if he's going to pick up the slack because if he picks up the slack running the ball more because of the fact they're having these running back problems, upside QB one upside in fantasy is huge. 
the Raiders, what am I looking for there? Brian Edwards, can he be a thing? Backfield split. Um, not only is it how much is it going to hurt Josh Jacobs not having the receiving work, but can Kenyon Drake maybe be a thing? you know, maybe be a flex thing on his own. I think those are the two points. Uh, Henry Ruggs breakout. I'm a little dubious on that, but that would be the other thing that I potentially would look for. All right. So I think I've got it all. I've, I've said it all here. I'll be back talking with you again with Ryan Paganetti next week uh, on Tuesday morning. We'll tape and we'll try to release that on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, we'll also do a review, of, a more in-depth review of Monday Night Football, but then hit reviews of different games and game management situations that you guys may be interested in fourth downs all that all that sort of stuff um so thank you for tuning in and i'll be talking at you then next week